Well, good morning to each one of you. It's so nice to see you. And uh, Erica just sent out a um, email uh, to the email list. And by the way, if you're not on the email list, all you have to do is just contact the church office and they will put you on so you can keep up to date with things that are sent out. But she does just a fabulous job as usual and she covers the details of what you need to do if you're interested in getting the study guide. There's uh, notes for you and they go along with each one of the five sessions. Uh, so I'm not gonna say a lot about that. But I think this, that if you know the Lord, uh, there's something in our hearts that God puts to share it with others. It could be a loved one that you're burdened for that doesn't know Christ, could be someone at work, a neighbor, a friend, whomever. Um, but sometimes, you know, I find that Christians don't know, A, how to even start it, how to get into the subject, how do I, where do I begin? Or number two, once they begin talking about it, uh, what, what do I say, what's the plan? And then even if they have an idea about that, I think one of the hardest things is at the very end, how do I conclude the talk? And so what do I do to bring it to a conclusion uh, if I sense especially if they are very open to what God is uh, saying to their heart at this time? I think this will help. You can do it with one person, two people. You can do it in a study group. Uh, you can stop the tape, keep it going, think, reflect, do it in a Thrive group. So whatever works for you, uh, is great, and I hope it'll be a blessing to you, and also just increase our uh, our capacity here at OBC uh, for personal evangelism and reaching people with the gospel of Christ. Now, Pastor Rob asked me several months ago if I would uh, uh, fill in for him during the month of August while he's on that much-needed vacation, and uh, after we talked, we decided that uh, with the elders and especially uh, the two-pronged emphasis this uh, year on generosity, which Rob covered, and then on families, that uh, I would cover that. And so we're going to be talking on family matters. And uh, when we talk about family matters, I'm using it in a two-pronged sense. One, family really does matter, but then getting into specific some things about family matters that we deal with every day. Now, I realize also that whether it's here in this auditorium or out in the Fellowship Hall or people watching uh, on television, on the internet, that there's such a diversity of background uh, of the people to whom uh, I am speaking. Uh, some of you are single, and some of you single wish you were married. Um, some of you are married, and in that group, some might still wish they were single. Uh, then you've got the, the others that uh, have been married and divorced, and divorced and remarried and divorced. And so it could be once, twice, whatever. Um, but uh, you're in a, a particular, a widow or a widower. There are some people that are attracted to same-sex uh, people. Um, and so there's all kinds of diversity here, but I think you'll find that the scriptures have a way when you take this diverse group of people uh, to, to touch your heart and speak uh, to your heart uh, during this, uh, this time. I realize also there's some people that we deal with, and I just dealt with one this week on, uh, on Thursday, uh, really touched my heart, but a precious young lady, so nice and just sweet, and 
I started talking about the gospel. She says, you know, I don't know anything about the Bible. I don't know anything about God. I don't know anything about religion. Mom and dad were members of this church. Dad was a member of that church, but they never talked about it, never took us to church. And my heart just really went out to her. And I had the opportunity to share a little bit and give her the gospel of John. But I thought there's people like that today, especially a lot of people that have grown up and they just don't have a clue what the Bible says. Now, some of you have been grown up in a Christian home as far back as you can remember. Uh, you had a mom or a dad or grandparents that was teaching you about what, uh, what the Bible said about family matters. So we've got all this background and a lot of people come into the, even into marriage with a lot of baggage and uh, headaches, heartaches, and, and problems that, that they're facing. I want to say two things before we actually get started, and we'll be right in Genesis if you want to turn there in your Bibles. But I want to just say two things. Number one, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Let's remember that. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. No matter what, how much baggage we have, no matter where we've been, what we've done, that everyone stands at the foot of the cross. No one is standing on a little bit higher than one another. And we come there by the grace of God and uh, trust Christ as our Savior. And then number two, once you trust Christ as your Savior, and Lord willing, you become part of a church like Osterville Baptist Church, there are no second-class citizens in the family of God. So I hope you understand that no one is a first class and somebody's a lower class. No, we're all level there as well. We're members of the body of Christ. We're children of God and co-heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've had different uh, influences as I've prepared these messages for several weeks now. Uh, I've been, we just celebrated Miro and I our 54th wedding anniversary. So your personal marriage enters into something like this. Uh, the, the other thing I'm thinking of is I was a pastor for 50 or in ministry 55 years and uh, 25 of those years, I was a senior pastor and dealt with all kinds of different uh, family matters. But the third thing, and as you might expect, the great influence is on the commitment to the inerrancy and the authority of the word of God. And I'm convinced of the fact that we need to influence our changing culture around us that rather than having uh, the culture changing around us influence us. And if you read the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is particular, you find that the church was more Corinthianized than Corinth was Christianized. And that's happening today, even in the church, not just outside. But even in the church, sometimes we change the biblical clear teaching on something in order to accommodate others uh, so that they're uh, not so offended. Now, indeed, things have changed. They're going to continue to change. That's the nature of the beast. And if you look at today where we are compared to, say, 50, 60 years ago, there's just a few things that I don't want to bore you with. But we know that marriages themselves are on the decline. In 1960, 72% of American adults were married, but only 50% in 2008. The divorce rate is nearly the twice the rate as it was in 1960. 1970, 89% of all births were to married parents. Today, only 60% are. Today, more than half of all people live together before getting married. 2013, 23% of married people have been married before compared with 13% in 1960. Now, we believe that in the Bible we read marriage is the institution of God himself. God is the one who instituted marriage. God officiated at the first marriage, bringing 
the man and wife together as husband uh, as husband and wife. So often, not often, but every time I've ever uh, officiated at a wedding, I will usually begin the ceremony with words like this, marriage was instituted by God. It's to be regulated by the word of God. It was blessed by our Lord Jesus Christ and is to be held in honor among all men. Let us therefore reverently remember, etc., etc., to enter into this in a reverential way. But I think the most ultimate thing we can say about marriage that some people miss is this. Probably the classic passage on marriage uh, in the Bible is in Ephesians chapter 5. And there God tells us to be filled with the spirit. Then he tells husbands, uh, you act this way with your wives. Wives, you act this way. Parents do this. Children do that, etc., etc. But a little verse tucked, the next to last verse in chapter 5, verse 32, it says these words. This mystery that I'm talking about, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And I remember the first time I saw that, I thought, here he's talking about a family and what our roles are. Then all of a sudden he says, now you need to understand, I'm not just talking about a human relationship here. I'm telling you there is a greater picture. And this mystery, this mega mystery is literally the word, is profound and it refers to Christ and the church. Christ is the bridegroom and we are the bride. All you have to do is read Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 11. We are in the first stage of the, of the traditional marriage uh, as it was in the times of Jesus. We've been betrothed to the Lord Jesus. Now we're waiting for his to call us. The bridegroom comes and takes the bride to his home. And then after you do that and have the wedding ceremony, then you have the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's all there in Revelation that we don't have time, nor is it necessary to talk about it. The point is, I want you to see that when Paul speaks about marriage, he says, I'm really speaking of Christ and the church. Now, God's original intention in marriage is going to form the foundation for this series. Some of you are not going to like this short definition. Here's the one that, that I came up with. You can amplify it. Here's a very simple one. Marriage is a lifelong monogamous relationship between a man and a woman. You say, well, what about this? Uh, the same Marriage is a monogamous relationship lifelong between a man and a woman. End of discussion. That's what the Bible says. Anything else is not compatible with the Word of God. So uh, there's a lot, it raises a lot of questions, I understand it. But that is how the scriptures present marriage. Now, today we're going to look at the very uh, first marriage. And it's uh, in Genesis, and it's with our first parents, Adam and Eve, where we see the glory of God and the perfect pair. And of course, the first thing that's going to happen here is God's going to create the man. Uh, who obviously is going to be the groom. So we read in Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So when you look at this, it says God made man in his own image. Now we know this creation account is true and real and literal because Jesus said it was and referred to it himself. And so we know it's a real thing. It's a real creation. And uh, God created man in his own image. Now, what was his image? If I say, uh, you know, uh, a, a baby looks like his mom or dad, we're used to thinking, you know, of a physical image. But there was no physical image because God is a spirit and God didn't take on a human form until Bethlehem years, thousands of years later. So it has to do with the immaterial part of man, what you and I would call the soul, what we would call the personality. So it deals with the intellect. 
deals with the emotions, it deals with the will. So if when you women are sitting there thinking about a husband, and just think if your husband were like Adam, with a perfect intellect, probably the, no doubt the most brilliant man that ever lived, with perfect emotions, ever loving, ever forgiving, ever forbearing, I mean just perfect because he's in the image of God and his will was in harmony uh, with God. So it jumps off the pages to us when we read in Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 where God says uh, that it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now if you read the first chapter of Genesis, you read seven times after God creates uh, this, he creates that, he creates that. God then says this, and it was good. And it was good. Seven times. But now he creates man. And for the first time in the Bible, you'll read where God looks down and he says, it's not good. Something is not good. What's not good, God? It's not good that man should be alone. And therefore, God says, I will make him a helper fit for him or a helpmate. Now, I can already hear the groans coming out from the females out there in the fellowship hall, and some are trickling down from here, and some are coming through the internet. They don't like that word help me. They think it's kind of menial. Uh, I think the Hebrew grammar might help us here, because the word help meet literally means this. It means one who corresponds to in every way. Another uh, Hebrew scholar said, supplying something crucial that is lacking. I want to also say that it's also used of God. Have we ever, can remember a verse where it says, and the Lord is my helper? That's the same word. So it's not a menial word at all. All it's saying is, here is man, something is missing in man. Therefore, God creates a woman, one who corresponds to him in every way. And that's what's God's uh, intention. So that Adam had one voice, that God wants the song of life to be sung in a harmonious duet. And so his plan for marriage is a partnership in which man is God's protective leader and his wife is his helpmate that corresponds to him in every way. And in a partnership together, they jointly display the glory of God by exercising dominion over the earth. So man and woman, as to their essence, are absolute equals. One is in no way superior to the other. They are equals. But they have different forms. They have different functions. Don't let that scare you. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are equals, but they each have their roles. They have different roles. The Father sent the Son. The Son willingly came and died. The Holy Spirit glorifies Christ. Yet they're all God, but they each have their roles and functions, and so it is with mankind. So now God sculptures the bride, and we read about that in Genesis 2, verses 21 to 23. So let's read these verses. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs, and he closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Here is God's creative genius at his best. So Eve, like Adam, was created in the image of God. Like Adam, perfect intellect, perfect emotions, a will in perfect harmony with God. Now you look at that, and you men out there who are married, say, just think, 
If I were married to a woman with perfect intellect, whose emotions were perfect, just like God. We love to talk about a woman and her emotions, don't we? But we're not going to do that today. Although I did see a comic strip several years ago, still a little bit in my mind, where Eve is looking to Adam, and she's having it all day. She's feeling insignificant. Uh, you know, da, da. She says, Adam, do you really love me? And he said, who else? And so uh, that's, that's, the way it, that's kind of the way it goes here. But a woman is perfect. Intellect, emotions, a will in harmony with God. So then it raises a question. Here's the question, if you're thinking. If Adam is perfect, as he's created, intellect, emotions, will, he's in a perfect environment, Garden of Eden. He's in a relationship with a perfect God, in a perfect relationship, why in the world would God say, that's not good? Why wouldn't he have everything he needs? He says he needs something to complete him. Now, I don't know the answer to the question, I'll say first of all, but I'll give you what I think is the answer, which is always dangerous. But I think it's summed up in Genesis 1.26, where, where God says, let us make man in our image. Now, did you catch that first personal plural pronoun, let us? Who is that? Why would God say let us? Because God is Trinity. Now, Trinity isn't taught in the Old Testament, but it's allowed for in the Old Testament. The very fact he used the first personal uh, plural pronoun, let us make man in our image, says that there is a one God who eternally exists. And as we find in the New Testament in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so in that relationship from eternity past, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all eagle, had fellowship with each other. Now God looks down at man and he's got a vertical relationship, but what's he missing? What God has, the horizontal relationship. And so he says it's not good that man should be alone. And so he creates uh, the woman. And when Adam sees her, he breaks forth in this poetic response. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Remember, men, when you said that? I remember 54 years ago up there in northern Maine, and boy, the doors open and the organ pipes are let out and the bridal march, and I'm looking at, and I'm thinking to myself, at last, here she comes. And that's what Adam says. And he took Eve to him in, in a, such a loving, sensing the complete incompleteness he felt and now how complete he felt and how she ended his, his biting loneliness. So the glory of God then is manifested in a perfect partnership in which man as the divinely appointed leader and his wife alongside him jointly represent the creator by exercising dominion over the earth. Now we jump a few thousand years and we come to chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. Now Moses is writing. So Moses is writing about 3,500 years ago from today, just around figures 1500 BC. And when Moses then drafts these first few chapters of Genesis and the first five books of the Bible, notice what he adds in chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. And here we come to the government of God and the permanent principles. Because you're going to see four principles that are permanent for us today. You say, well, how in the world do you know they're permanent? Because Jesus quotes these verses in Matthew 19. And then when Paul is instructing the church, back in again in Ephesians 5, Paul then quotes these very same words. So they're, they're first by God, recorded by Moses, 
confirmed by the Lord Jesus Christ and affirmed by the Apostle Paul himself. And the verses say, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Now here are the four principles for you that I get in these verses. Number one, there's the cutting off. The cutting off. And that has to do with the relationship that the man uh, and, and wife uh, had with their parents. So it's the first directive God gave. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. This is the cutting of the cord. It's a very strong word. So, sometimes it's translated leave by even the word abandon. But I think what it's doing, it's, it's showing us uh, two words I think of that I think it's, it's bringing into meeting. Number one, I have a new allegiance as a man. And my new primary allegiance, my priority, next to the Lord, of course, but humanly speaking, is no longer to my mom and dad. I am no longer under their authority. I will honor them for as long as they live, but they're not under my authority. And that allegiance now has shifted. For I leave that and I cleave to my wife. And the second one is support. You know, one of the things you ask uh, when, if you have a daughter and someone, the young man comes and asks you for her hand, does he have the means to support her? Uh, because now they're leaving the protection and the umbrella and all the support that mom and dad gave back here, and now they're establishing uh, their own household. And let me just say to you parents who are still looking to that day when you uh, have that happening and you're giving your daughter away especially, the greatest gift you can give, whether it's your daughter or your son, is to let them go. Let them go. Follow this principle of a cutting off. They are no longer under your, always will be loving, always will be supporting, always be, they are no longer under your authority and they're no longer under your support. And uh, now they have formed a new family unit. Now there's a second principle here, not only cutting off, but a cleaving too. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now this word means to stick like glue. And it's interesting that in the Hebrew, the cleaving is in the passive tense. Don't mean to bore you with that, but it's important. If it's in the passive tense, then somebody else is doing the cleaving. Somebody else is gluing the husband and wife together into one unit. Who is that to do in the cleaving? Well, Jesus answers that for us himself when he said this, whom what God hath joined together, there it is, what God hath joined together, what? Let no man put asunder. So this is the idea of, in my definition, it's a lifelong commitment, the ideal, the permanent bond of marriage until death do us part. You say, well, you don't know what I'm going I don't, I don't know. Well, you say, well, there is an exception in the rule because I remember somewhere where it said Moses for the hardness of their heart. I understand all that. That's not the subject today. The subject today is when I stand before and I make that commitment, it is a lifelong commitment that I am making uh, to the Lord. And so Jesus said, whom God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Now, I want you to understand this commitment, this covenant, this promise is both vertical and horizontal. Now, let's go back to the marriage ceremony, if you don't mind. So I'm standing there, and I've got the bride, I've got the groom standing before me, and I come to that ceremony, what am I going to say? 
I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to ask each of you, this is what we call, we used to call it in the dark ages, the pledging of the trough. Remember? Today, most people don't know what trough is. It's the pledging of the faithfulness. And so you look to the, uh, John, will you have this woman to be thy lawfully wedded wife? Blah, blah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Mary, will you have John to be your lawfully wedded husband, etc., etc.? And then the answer, yes, I will. Now, what are they doing? They're making a covenant. To whom are they making the covenant? They're not looking at each other. They're looking at me and they're looking around. They're making the covenant before God, remember, and what? These witnesses. So it's a covenant to God. God, I promise you, I take that person to be my husband, to be my wife, until death do us part. Then we move into another part of the ceremony. At this time, I have the, uh, the, the man and the wife join each other's hand, and she gives them her little flowers or daffodils or whatever they are uh, to the bridesmaid, and then I have them join hands. Now they're not looking at me, they're looking at each other, and they're holding each other's hands. And so what are they doing? They're looking at each other eyeball to eyeball. And I said, John, you repeat after me. I, John, take thee, Mary. I, John, take thee, Mary. To be my lofty water, to be my lofty I, Mary, take thee, John. Now, what are they doing? This is the horizontal. They've made the vow to God. Until death do apart, I will take her. Now they're saying to each other, I take you to be my husband or to be my wife. How long are you going to do it for? Until death do us part. Now, there it is right there. And I'm afraid that this covenant bond understanding is slowly but surely disappearing from our culture. Do you ever hear a person say, as I have many times, why do we need a piece of paper to show that we love each other? Well, what's with the certificate? Why do we need that? And I say, well, what are you going to base your marriage on? Well, we love, we love each other. Oh, okay. Now I'll tell you what the next step is. You may not go there with them. The next step, if you love each other and you've got a deep passion of love for each other, how are you going to express that? You're going to have sex. Then after you have sex primarily, you're not married, you have sex, then what are you thinking? Well, no reason we can't live together. Because who knows how compatible we might be or might not be? And only if we live together can we find out if we're really compatible. Now, let me tell you something right now. It's a lie. It's deception. It's stupid. I mean, I could just go on and on, and it's plain immoral and against the law of God. If your marriage is based on love, trust me, you're going to fall out of love. And if you don't fall out of love, even on your honeymoon, you're going to fall out of like. And you're going to wonder, what in the world did I get myself into? And every married couple has got to that point where they say, sometimes, I'm not sure I even like him. All I'm saying is love, like, passionate, love-making, sexual relationships, it has its ebbs and flows. It's got its ups and downs. Don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And that's the way that marriage is. So what is it that keeps you glued together? It's the covenant. It's the commitment. It's not if storms of life come, it's when they come. How do you work your way through them, whatever it is? I made a commitment, and that commitment was until death to us part. I made it to God, and I made it to my spouse. You've heard me say it before, but in our 54 years of marriage, not that ours is perfect, no marriage is. 
We did not allow the word divorce to ever be spoken in our home because it was never an option. But we have confessed that we thought of first-degree murder several times, okay? <laughs> divorce, never. But first-degree murder, well, that might be another reason I'm in prison besides being a chaplain. Okay, thirdly, completing of the person. They shall be one flesh. Here we speak of the union between man and wife, not uniformity. Eve didn't become a female Adam. Moses used the Hebrew word ekad. He could have used yachad. He used his ekad. And so when it says, Here, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one, every, every synagogue service opens, whether you're in Moscow, whether you're in Manila, whether you're in Miami, wherever you are, every synagogue service opens in Deuteronomy 6.4 for the Jewish people. Here, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord is one. That's Ekkot. He's a united one. He's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but he's one unit. And this is so important because we are also individually joined together as one, but yet each person has the freedom to cultivate their talents, their own spiritual gifts, their ministries, which abolishes any sense of one person controlling the other person. Now, let me go back to the wedding ceremony again. After you go through all this and you do, will you take this? Yes, I do. I marry, take thee. I take you, John. You're okay. Now, we got all that done. Now, I'm standing here and there's a table before me. And what happened to begin the ceremony is what? The mothers came down, the mother of the groom, mother of the bride came down, and they lit the candles on the outside. You ever seen that? So there's three candles out there. There's a middle candle, and then there's two sides. And they light the two side candles. What do the two side candles represent? They represent the bride and the groom. So then as I'm talking, I might be quoting a verse of scripture just like this one. And the man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, they too shall be one flesh. Now what are the bride and groom doing? They're going back there and they're going to take their individual candle. And what are they going to do? They're going to light the middle candle. Got it? Now what does that signify? The two shall become one. Now they used to then blow out their own candle. Then only the unity candle is lit. But as time progressed, some like say, well, I like the idea that the two shall be one, but I'm still an individual. And so I want to keep my own candle lit. So I don't care. If you want to keep it lit, fine. Now we've got three candles out there. No big deal. But I'll never forget one wedding ceremony. And I'll have to admit, I did laugh out loud. But anyway, after they light the candles, then they come back down. They start facing the audience. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you, Mr. and Mrs. Blah, blah, blah. Then the music starts up. But as they laugh, Groom left his candle lit, middle candle's lit, bride left her middle candle up, but as she walked around, she blew out his candle. And I said, son, you're going for a ride the rest of your life, so get ready. But uh, it was a little comical, I will, I will say that. I don't know what happened. There's a quote up there, Peter Marshall, that if you just look at that quickly, because time's running out on me and I've got to get done here. But Peter Marshall, probably the most influential chaplain of the United States Senate, talked about marriage being a uh, union of domestic, social, spirits, and physical. Now let's go to the fourth principle quickly, communication with, and this has to do with purity or with uh, probably a better word is even transparency. The verse 25 says, and they shall be naked. Now that's not just a description of two people without their clothes on. Uh, rather, the point is that marriage is to be a close, uninhibited, transparent relationship based on purity and truth and the idea of complete communication in every area. So you know each other and what you're thinking. And that's the way God wanted marriage to be. They had no idea at this time. They're still perfect. They haven't sinned. They had no idea that sexual desire could be perverted. 
They had no idea that the imaginations of man's mind could go into all kinds of different directions. There was no shame for they had no shame. There was no sin for they had not sinned. There was no evil. And how wonderful was what Adam and Eve enjoyed, but it didn't last. We know what happened. Go to the last point where we talk about a pernicious plot and uh, whereby our first parents succumbed to the wiles of the devil. And then the painful proclamations were made concerning spiritual and physical death. But we always see the grace of God uh, as paramount, even with the pernicious plot. Now, there's the human response of, of, of guilt. Pernicious, by the way, pernicious simply means a highly destructive injury uh, inflicted by the insidious and corrupting force. We know who that force was. It was the serpent. It was Satan uh, uh, in the serpent that had tempted Eve uh, and caused and allowed Adam to sin as well. Now, Moses uses some short phrases that we don't have time to look at to summarize what happened after uh, the certain beguiled Eve, and then she gave her husband, then he willfully took, and they both disobeyed God. Here's what Moses writes. He says, she took, she ate, she gave, he ate. Everything Christ, innocence was gone. Genesis 3, 7 says it all. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. Now their vision has changed. It's no longer with the eyes of purity and transparency. Now they're seeing everything around them in a different perspective. They became self-focused. They weren't self-focused before. They withdrew from each other, just like some husbands and wives do today. And they were fearful. They were fearful of God. They were fearful of what the spouse might be thinking. They knew they were naked. The innocence was gone. The intimacy was gone. God said, the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. And at that moment of sin, they died spiritually. They still lived in hundreds of years uh, physically, but they died in their perfect fellowship and relationship with God. And now sin had become part of their life. And as a result of that, death is always separation. Conflict comes, heartache comes. Then they heard the voice of God in the cool of the day. And they hid themselves, but God says, Adam, where are you? I was afraid, for I was naked. Oh, really, Adam? Who told you you were naked, Adam? Did you really eat of that, but I forbade you? Let the guilt and blame game begin. Oh, Lord, it was the woman you gave me, her fault. Now we're shifting the blame, not taking the responsibility. And by the way, God, since it was you that gave me the woman, Maybe you're the ultimate cause. Maybe you're the ultimate problem. Then he goes on, and this Adam threw his beloved wife Eve under the bus. Does a woman ever forget being thrown under the bus? I want to ask Eve that someday. I really do. I want to ask her, did you ever forget that Adam threw you under the bus? Were you able to over really get over that? It'll be interesting to see what her answer is. Eve, what have you done? Well, it was the serpent. Oh, really? Yeah, but it was his fault. He beguiled me. Oh. But you know, come to think of it, God, you made the serpent. So maybe you're the blame. Maybe you're the fault. If there weren't any serpent, there wouldn't be 
any of the beguiling. And so the blame game continues on. No couple had more adjustments to marriage than Adam and Eve. Yet instead of running from each other, they worked through the harsh consequences of evil. The sin-corrupted image of God in humans and the sin-twisted world did not make marriage impossible. It just makes it a whole lot of work. It's difficult. If you're going to have a successful God-honoring marriage, I'm telling you what, you never stop working, right? It's constantly working on being the man, the husband God wants me to be, and the woman, the wife God wants to be. You'd be interested to know that longitudinal studies tell us that almost 70% of unhappy couples will become happy in five years if they stick it out and don't get a divorce. That's why some states now require for you to have to wait. Once you file for a divorce, you have to wait a year or even two years. And I've seen it happen where a divorce, I saw it in my own extended family, where the divorce was coming up on the very day and then God did something. And now this couple seven children living for the glory of God. The heavenly response of grace. How does God respond to all this? Well, there is judgment. We'll talk a little bit about that consequences to man and woman. We'll touch on that next week a little bit. But notice Genesis 3.21, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Why did God, God do that? Remember, they had already clothed themselves with fig leaves, but the message of that moment was forthright. Adam and Eve, you're not what you used to be. You're not what you should be. You're not what I intended you to be. There's a huge divide. You've covered yourself. And that was good, but for the wrong reason. You did it can conceal your guilt. But I'm going to cover you that you might confess your guilt and be cleansed. And so the message of grace comes in Genesis 3.15, which is called the Proto-Evangelium. Made up of two words, protos, meaning first, evangelium, which is the gospel, the good news. First mention of the gospel, Genesis 3, 15. Listen to what it says. God says to the serpent, the old devil, I will put enmity between you. This is the judgment on Satan. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. Who's going to bruise your head, Satan? The seed of the woman. Only one person qualifies to be the seed of the woman in the history of humanity because every one of us here are of the seed of man. The only one is the Lord Jesus who was born of the Virgin Mary. He is the only one that can be the seed of the woman. And he's the one ultimately who already has rendered death to Satan through the destruction of the cross and the raising of the dead. But at his second coming and after the millennial reign, he'll be completely thrown into the lake of fire forever. And here's the amazing grace of Almighty God. He deals with our sin problem through the seed of the woman. He deals the fatal blow to Satan. And when God covered Adam and Eve with the skins of animals, where did he get those skins? Son of animal had to die. God killed an animal. And then he took those skins and he put them around Adam and Eve. It's a beautiful picture. The blood that was shed on that animal becomes a type of Christ, the Lamb of God, who bears the sin of the world. The skins of the animals now covering Adam and Eve Beautiful picture of the imputation of righteousness of the robe of Christ to the sinner who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So God will solve the problem of fear, pride, selfishness, and shame between man and woman with his new blood covenant. So I close the message, and I ask you today, how is your life? How is your marriage? How is your family? If there's sinful behavior, face it head on. Confess your sins to God. Confess them to one another. Focus on God. Don't blame others. Don't cover it up. Own up. Make a decision. Don't throw in the cow. Make a decision to work on your... You get a lot of people here who help you. And that's what we want to see happening in these weeks ahead. Our families brought together for the glory of God. Would you bow with me in prayer? Holy Father, thank you for the institution of the family. Even for Adam and Eve, Lord, who come alive to us this morning. And especially the glory of God and the grace of God. And I pray you'd work in our hearts and lives to yield ourselves to you as Savior and as Lord of our life. In Christ's name, amen.